0: Good morning, good morning, and good morning to you too. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall, and we have another day to try to make it better. That's one way to look at it. The show today will be focused on criminal justice, and with a somber tone, I have to say or is it criminal injustice that's what I'm seeing all around me and because I don't think human beings are my superpower I don't think they are my higher power I sometimes think they're more trouble than they're worth I will go forward though with the hope perhaps the faith of a mustard seed and say I do believe we can do better than this. How many people have been killed by police since the Derek Chauvin verdict last week? When we talked about the charges and awaited the outcome of the Derek Chauvin trial, for the blatant murder of George Floyd. And then when we received guilty on all three counts, doesn't it seem like a century ago that that happened? It was just last week. We have to understand that the retaliation, I would think, is what we're looking at, retaliation. And I, I think about the, the ongoing sense of our policing in this country and what we call the shining light on the hill of democracy. And we have to understand the history of our police departments. Yes, this is the 21st century, but our police departments, without major reform, have at their core the history of slave catchers, militia to put down Native American uprisings, night riders. I have, with my own eyes, seen the sheriff badges with the sheriff number on the front and the KKK, Ku Klux Klan membership number on the back of the sheriff's badge. I've seen this, held it in my hand. I want us to understand that national criminal justice reform is needed because embedded in our criminal justice system is a sense that our policing departments are created to protect white middle class and whites generally from people of color that's how our policing began and we have not had national criminal justice reform that looks at this straight in the face for what it is and then speaks of reform not the piecemeal reform which is great to have positive prosecutors who are trying to do something in their jurisdictions but their efforts only last as long as their tenure in the office their elected offices what we need to have is national criminal justice reform that is My personal and professional take on this, but we're going to be continuing our series and discussing these criminal justice issues with candidates for one of the most, if not arguably the most powerful district attorney's office in the country, and that is the office of Manhattan D.A., we began our conversations with lucy lang and we will continue our conversations today with tally for weinstein who will be joining us and throughout this time leading up to the primary we will have conversations with candidates for manhattan d a we're going to be asking them and talking to them in ways for us to better understand how that d a s office is going to be one that can set a, a sense of purpose for the rest of the country when it comes to criminal justice. That DA's office is one just like the NYPD, the New York Police Department, that not only is symbolic of the most powerful office in the country when it comes to a DA's office, the most powerful prosecutor, of course, is the U.S. Attorney General in Washington, D.C., but when we come to these local DA's offices, we have to understand that New York, because of its principal place in the country, economically and culturally, as well as in the area of criminal justice. We set the tone for the rest of the country. So the top cop, as they say um, in the Manhattan borough, will be one who, like Cyrus Vance today, um, will be one seen around the country. By name will know who that DA is and what their platform is and what types of policies they're going to put forward. And so we're going to have these conversations each Tuesday and we're going to hear from those candidates and I think this is important. It's continuing on something that WBAI began in the early part of the year with a DA candidate forum. And so we want to lead into the primary on June 22nd, having had some sense of who wants to be in that position so that we can better understand when we go into that voting booth why we're choosing that particular candidate. Too often for these jobs, we don't understand, know the background, unfamiliar with what the policies are for particular candidates. So we want to inform and empower you with information about the candidates, but thus also look at criminal justice issues before us. Yes, We've had I don't know how many more killings. We don't keep records of this in our country. Believe it or not, over a 1,000 people die at the hands of police every year in this country. And the only reason why we know this is that the media, the Washington Post and the Guardian newspapers, decided to take it upon themselves to track these things down. But that's only if these um, deaths make Local news, and now that we've had local newspapers shutting down, we don't know what is going on with the rest of the country. The Federal Bureau of Investigation should have this information, or, and this is what I propose, the police departments under penalty of perjury must submit this information to the Justice Department. The same way we have information submitted since 1957 under the Civil Rights Act of 1957 when it comes to race-based data to the Justice Department for other things. That's how we know um, with the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, how many cases of of, of hate crimes or or crimes in in employment uh, or or issues of employment and discrimination. That's how we know particular um, issues are taking place regarding race um, in criminal justice is through the Bureau of Justice Statistics. We keep race-based data. We keep race-based data regarding education. And so we don't have this race-based data. We don't have data at all that is consistent when it comes to the use of force by police departments that end in death. And I actually think we should have data um, that is consistent with the use of the drawing of the weapon or the use of the weapon of police officers. When they draw their weapon, um, there's a record in the police department when they draw the, that weapon. Why is that, weapon, that, that, that data not um, data that the Department of Justice has? These are the types of questions I've had. These are the type of questions I've raised in the media myself. But so many of us feel so frustrated because as often as we say, we're going to do better as a nation. We're going to work on this. Uh, President Biden says he's going to work on it. We're looking at stalled uh, national reform in the legislature legislative branch uh, passed by the house and still languishing in the senate the george floyd justice and policing bill and at this time as this happens we're looking at a case in elizabeth city north carolina that the andrew brown juniors family is calling an execution It. We believe uh, we will have trickles of of information, as we've had with all of these cases, trickle here and a trickle there. Protests na- needed for us to get what should be rightfully ours as taxpayers. The bullets, the guns, the training to use the bullets and the guns—all of that is paid for with taxpayer money. And yet. The video cams that we were supposed to receive, and I say we, meaning our communities writ large, were supposed to receive. We were the ones who demanded the video cams, and yet when the videos are working, we can't get access to the video itself. That all should be part of national criminal justice reform. Um, I also want to speak about a Supreme Court case, a Supreme Court case of jones versus mississippi and in which in recent decision that um our supreme court yes our supreme court led by the conservatives and in our supreme court led by the conservatives it was decided that permanent incorrigibility think about this permanent incorrigibility meaning in the case of jones versus mississippi a case where the majority opinion was written by justice kavanaugh A 15-year-old commits murder. Heinous 15-year-old commits murder. The murder is of his own grandfather. Heinous crime. Heinous. He's 15 years old. And it's decided at 15 years old that he will never be a person who is worthy of ever seeing the light of day outside of a prison. He is sentenced to life without possibility of parole. I remember watching Brian Stevenson arguing the case of Miller v. Alabama. He won that case, and it was determined that a person who commits a crime, even murder under the age of 18, would have the possibility of parole. Up to that point, there were children And when you think about the crime, you think about, well, we can't really call them children. Yes, these are children who have been convicted of heinous crimes, some of them, not all of them, and then sentenced to life without possibility of parole. Justice Kavanaugh, with the conservative backing and, um, of course, uh, the dissent, I shouldn't say, of course, but it is a dissent of what we call the liberal's Led by Justice Sotomayor, including um, Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan, then uh, dissenting. Because permanent incorrigibility—Are we God? Permanent incorrigibility means that this person, at 15, has has stamped in their DNA or their their brains their there being something that could never be redeemed. That is the case of Jones versus Mississippi, a case that was recently decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. As we focus now again on criminal justice, I want you to um, be with me, think about the different issues, concerns you may have as I discuss with candidate um, Tally. For Haydn Weinstein, what it is she wants as the top cop of Manhattan, the prosecutor of what we believe is the most powerful DA's office in the country. We'll be right back after this musical break. And the next voice you hear on the other side of this will be me talking with candidate for Haitian Weinstein. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall, and we're here with Tally for Haitian Weinstein. Good morning. Good morning, Gloria. Thank you for having me. Well, I have um, a very important question to ask you, and we'll just jump into it if you don't mind.
1: Wonderful. I'm excited to talk to another
0: law professor
1: about law to
0: kick off the day. Okay, thank you so much. (laughs) Well, let's start. And we have listeners who are trying to figure out, in the midst of so many um, police-involved civilian shootings, where do you stand on this? What is going on from a prosecutor's perspective? Because I've been highly critical of the prosecutors, uh, and I'll say that generally, but I, I, I'm i trying to maintain an open mind. And in the heated debate uh, around the Derek Chauvin case, we have prosecutors generally writ large and it's like what is it that prosecutors do and then where can they stand in the midst of these police-involved civilian shootings where we can get a sense of what we should be expecting from a prosecutor's office? Sure it's such an important question Gloria as we
1: are all I think as a country digesting the verdict last week uh, and what it means and uh, uh, let me first start by saying that our, our job is really simple uh, at its heart. The, what we are supposed to do is to hold people accountable when they violate the law, when they hurt others, no matter who they are. And that certainly means no matter what uniform they are wearing. Uh, and this is why uh, in my last job, and I was the general counsel of the Brooklyn DA's office, part of DA Gonzalez's just... Uh, criminal justice reform plan was to create a standalone law enforcement accountability bureau. I built that for him and supervised it to affirm the principle I just said, which is we have to hold law enforcement accountable just like anybody else. And uh, I was very glad to see that last week's verdict demonstrated that that can happen. But of course, Gloria, that there, there is so much more to do that was one case in which there was a demonstration of accountability uh, and in a relatively easy case I think because we had a brutal murder on videotape uh, as evidence uh, and now we have to do the hard work.
0: And when we talk about criminal justice reform what does that entail? What, what did you reform in your job? Um, and when you took on that uh, in, in Brooklyn, that that massive responsibility of looking at what is and changing it to something else, what did you see and how did you change it and into what? I, I'm sorry, just a little
1: hard to hear you, Gloria. You sound kind of far away. So uh, as I understood it, you asked me to talk about criminal justice. Reform in Brooklyn uh, and what I learned there. Is that right?
0: Yes, I'm trying. I, I'm sorry if there's it's, oh, uh, something better. with I hear the you sound. Better now. Okay, great, great. Um, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so that's why I'm trying to keep it open ended. So, when you arrived in Brooklyn, what did you see in need of reform and um, how did you reform it?
1: Sure. So, uh, you know, what we were doing in Brooklyn was, I think, part of uh, a national phenomenon to look at local prosecution and uh, reckon with a couple of things. First of all, uh, so many cases were being brought, you know, all around the country, this continues to happen, that are just not making anybody's life better, that don't seem to be advancing public safety, which, of course, is the whole point of this job. And at the same time, so many racial disparities in how the law is enforced uh, reacting to you know thinking about both the race of the defendant and also the race of the victims I think this has been a kind of an underreported phenomenon across the country that uh, when some people were being hurt harmed stolen from assaulted uh, prosecutors and police around the country were not taking it as seriously as they would have uh, if the victims had been right so To me, criminal justice reform is about correcting for all of those things and then really doing what we were supposed to do in the first place, which is to look out for the most vulnerable. Uh, You know, right now in New York, I think that means making sure we're using our resources to fight gun violence and hate crimes and gender violence, things like domestic violence, uh, sexual assault, to really keep people safe from those things.
0: So what did you see in the in in, in Brooklyn that mm-hmm. I would say name two things that you saw in Brooklyn that needed immediate reform and how did you reform it? Okay, so uh, I'll will t- tell you something interesting. Uh, I I
1: built the first post conviction justice bureau in the country over in Brooklyn because one of the things that I saw is. You can describe all of the problems that have happened, as I just have, and then the consequences are that folks are incarcerated when they should not be, either because their convictions were just wrongful, they were innocent, or their rights have been grossly violated, or their sentences were just out of proportion, way too long. Uh, so we built a bureau to say this is part of a prosecutor's job, is to think about people who are incarcerated and to do right by them and to do justice for them. So one of the things that we did when we saw that these sentences were so long is to think about parole differently. And, you know, Gloria, this is particularly on my mind because of the Supreme Court's decision in the life without parole case this week, uh, which is uh, so divergent from what we tried to do, which is to, as best we could, go back to people who had been really young in new york when they had been sentenced to really long prison terms uh and to if, if possible to even go up to meet them and to say does this person need to be incarcerated in, anymore we know that uh when people are young they when they commit a crime there's so much capacity for change uh and it doesn't make sense to just warehouse them in prison forever
0: and and if you would just name one other thing, so that's a we we know we have the Jones versus Mississippi Supreme Court decision, um, but I'm trying to also figure out um, when you're looking at the Manhattan DA's office, is there mm-hmm. something in particular that comes to you that says? And And looking at their website, for example, and I and I'll I'll clarify. That's why I said I don't want to put words in your mouth. But for example, sure. the the Vera Institute, um, took on a study about 2010-2011, in which they looked at the DA's office in Manhattan and tried to find what could be systemic issues that they could address around the issue of mm-hmm. race. And on their website, they're looking, for example, um, in in pretrial detention. And it and I and I quote: Black and Latino defendants were more likely to be detained at arraignment, and Asians mm-hmm. were less likely to be detained than white defendants. And plea bargaining. Overall, black and Latino defendants were more likely than white or Asian defendants to receive a sentence offer, including a jail or a prison term, as opposed to non-custodial offers, such as community service. Um, Winder... So people are actually looking at the the breakdown, the systemic breakdown of what is taking Mm -hmm. place in these offices and for sentencing compared to similarly situated white defendants, black and Latinos were more likely and, and Asians less likely to be sentenced to imprisonment. So if we have, for example, in sentencing, um, black and Latinos were more likely and Asians less likely to be sentenced to imprisonment, that black and Latinos are more likely compared to Asians and whites um, to be sentenced, what are we then seeing within a DA's office? And this is the Manhattan DA's office study, the Vera Institute study, in the behaviors of the prosecutors themselves. My concern mm-hmm. is that the the focus and it should be on those people who are arrested or you know uh, sentenced in those unduly long sentences. but what are we doing differently when it comes to a prosecutorial discretion that is giving rise to these things? How sure. are we going I- to change the prosecutor's behavior
1: mhm. Uh- Gloria, we have to do more than one thing at a time. So uh, certainly these things are not in competition. We, we have to do something about folks who are already incarcerated as I've spoken about. Mm-hmm. By the way, we went back and looked at the first 25 exonerations in Brooklyn and 24 out of 25 of them were black or Latino. Uh, so, uh, you know, this work is about racial justice at the back end and at the front end, of course. But I agree with you. You know, part of why we reckon with our past mistakes is so that we don't repeat them. And those disparities are something that we thought about in Brooklyn every single day. And I think this is why it's so important to track with precision. Are we producing disparities? Are our prosecutors and our police, when they make arrests, bringing implicit biases into their work uh, that we have to train people differently for, you know, and part of how we train them differently in Brooklyn was to, to force everyone to take a really hard look at the consequences uh, of, of allowing these systems to just sort of go on
0: without a reckoning. And uh, one, of, one of the critiques that we have seen when it comes to the the role of the police department and the prosecutor's office is that they work hand in glove so closely that sometimes the prosecutors can become blind to their implicit bias for protection, I would say, and that that's a strong word, of police. This understanding that the police officer's job is hard and this relationship they have has a tendency to make outside people distrust the, the role of the prosecutor mm-hmm. when it comes to a, um, a police-involved civilian incidents. Once again, we focus a great deal, and I don't trade off one over the other. My focus right now is what are prosecutors going to do differently in order mm-hmm. to not have these outcomes or to further mm-hmm. um, um, uh, the, the the further the sense that the job of the prosecutor, even though it's interdependent with the police department, is not one in which the prosecutor then turns their back on the, the people, the justice that they're supposed to be um, able to deliver on a civilian-civilian case, in which too often police departments uh, maybe feel too comfortable that the prosecutor is not going to prosecute them the same way they would a civilian. Uh, mm-hmm. This What mm-hmm. the Derek Chauvin case did was make us look at the prosecutor's office and the behavior of prosecutors, in particular prosecutorial mm-hmm. discretion. And I think across the country we're starting to see um, jurisdictions and, and you know whether or not it's the city or the state saying, do prosecutors deserve the type of immunity that they they have, and and so mm-hmm. I rarely hear prosecutors talking about the behavior of other prosecutors. And so my concern is in national criminal justice reform: what is the role of reforming the prosecutor's office?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, uh, Gloria, I, I share so many of your concerns, and let me just say off the top: police and prosecutors are two separate institutions, and uh, we do not have to put through every arrest they make, and we don't, and that's part of the hard work of being a DA is uh, serving as that control and having our own policies about what we think is a just prosecution to bring, and that's why part of my platform for the Manhattan DA's office is to have better control, more mature judgment at the entry point. Right in the part of the office that assesses arrests and decides what to turn into a prosecution so that we are holding ourselves to our own standard about who we are sending into the criminal justice system. And uh, you you also said something in there about uh, police just sort of feeling comfortable um, and thinking that there's a different set of rules that applies to them, and I reject that. Actually, in this Law Enforcement Accountability Bureau, that we put together in Brooklyn, uh, one of our priorities was to prosecute police officers for what some people call, you know, casually testifying, saying they saw something when they didn't see it. So we brought false statements prosecutions. We brought uh, a tampering with evidence charge that I don't think anyone had ever brought before um, against a police officer because, you know, that's wrong when anybody does it. But it's particularly degrading to trust in the criminal justice system uh, if one set of people uh, can can lie
0: and another cannot. And we're talking with um, Tali Farhideh and Weinstein, uh, law clerk for Judge Merrick Garland, now U.S. Attorney General, law clerk to... Uh, Supreme Court Justice, the late um, Sandra Day O'Connor, with an endorsement from um, Eric Holder. Um, Background from general counsel of the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. Um, There's so much that you have here in your background of what would make you a great lawyer. And in any case, uh, why did you want to be a prosecutor?
1: Yeah, you know, I uh, I only have ever really wanted to have one client, Gloria, which is the people, uh, which is the people of the United States and the people of Brooklyn and the people of Manhattan. And I think it's just the greatest privilege to stand up for them in court. And I also think that the prosecutor is a very special kind of lawyer because our job is to do justice. And that means that we get to decide if a prosecution, if a case should exist at all. Uh, And and that decision, the discretion uh, is to me, you know, the the place where uh, I can do the most meaningful work uh, to make sure that we are shaping lives for the better and not for the worst. uh,
0: And that prosecutors are really standing up for people and not against people. And having said that, If you do find the prosecutor is operating with implicit bias, if you do find the prosecutors are favoring police officers and turning a blind eye to their behavior, what do you think the consequences should be for those prosecutors?
1: Mm. Well, you know, I, I, I think that we have to have a just culture in these offices where we are investing in training our prosecutors, setting them up, to do justice, and to succeed. And when there is misconduct, let me be totally clear, uh, there's, I have absolutely no tolerance for that. Uh, so, uh, I, you know, I absolutely think that, you know, you can't, you can't have people who are unethical in their approach who aren't trying to do the right thing uh, doing this in- incredibly important uh, work and bearing this great responsibility. And so what should happen to them? Well, it, it it well they can be fired first of all. I mean that's the thing about you know the district attorney's office uh, has about six hundred lawyers in it, and it is within the district attorney's total discretion uh, as as to what who ought to be working there. But you know I also you know, one of the things that um, I did in Brooklyn, which I think is so important, uh, is uh, as general counsel I was the ethics and professional responsibility officer. It meant that. Anyone in the office could come and say, uh, I have a question. I'm not sure what the right thing to do is here or I'm getting conflicting advice or I wasn't trained to make this decision. Uh, And I think that that's just so important uh, to have that kind of resource and that kind of guidance, Uh, you know, just like we want our police officers to be trained to do the job well and to succeed.
0: Do you think that an Office of Ethics and Responsibility should be something for all district attorneys to have a, across the country? At, at something like a internal affairs for the prosecutor's office?
1: Yes, uh, absolutely, because, uh, uh, look, we'll hold people accountable when they commit misconduct after the fact, but it's so much better if we prevent it from happening in the first place uh, by by having somebody uh, who can guide, who can guide assistant district attorney uh, on how to do the right thing, on how to make good choices,
0: ethical, fair and just choices. Um, I, I know we're down to our last moment together, uh, but I'm going to circle back because this is something to me that's crucial. We have such a focus on um, police accountability, and in mm-hmm. even the the George Floyd uh, Justice in Policing Act and our bill, and so much of this this call for a change in police behavior, even defund the police, focus on police conduct. However, I have argued and continue to argue that it doesn't matter what the law is if the prosecutors don't prosecute. And that prosecutorial discretion um, is something Mm -hmm. that we need to focus on. And that's why this issue of immunity is now one that's been hotly debated most of this legislation that's proposed and most of the people who focus don't understand the relationship between law and prosecution you can have a law but if the prosecutors don't prosecute then what good is the law and that's why i keep circling back to what changes are going to take place in the prosecutor's office especially arguably the most powerful da's office in the country the, the manhattan da what is the policy or the the symbol that you are going to bring forward for the nation to see when it comes to what we do with prosecutors who behave badly?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Gloria, prosecutors who behave badly cannot work for me. Let me be super clear about that. And, you know, it's interesting, as you know, in New York, there have been some attempts to set up an ex- Internal commission, uh, you know, two prosecutors' offices that uh, allow people to bring complaints uh, outside of the office, right? To have some independent person make an evaluation of whether a prosecutor committed misconduct. And I I think that the way that it was proposed and set up in New York earlier didn't make sense. But I agree with the core concept. Uh, You know, all of us who have public trust, all of us. Who have public trust have to be held accountable when we violate
0: that trust? And um, are, do you support the George Floyd um, Justice in Policing Bill? Yes. Is there anything you would yes, like to add it to it? It's an
1: excellent piece of federal legislation.
0: Is there? It, it but it doesn't speak to the prosecutor's office. Do you think that there's something that we should be doing differently when it comes to data collection and um, and? police involve civilian civilian deaths I
1: I think that transparency is so important uh, in all of the areas that we've talked about today Gloria yes absolutely I mean uh, we talked about racial disparities uh, we need to own it and look it in the eye and I am committed to being uh, totally transparent in the manhattan da's office about who we are prosecuting what we're charging them with uh how we're treating victims uh depending on who they are uh and disclosing that so the the public can can with us you know hold us accountable to making sure that the system is fair
0: and just and in our closing what do you b- bring to this position that you think is special? Where, why should the voters vote for you? Mm.
1: You know, I think particularly now, Gloria, with the city in um, emerging from such a horrible crisis, we need people who know what they are doing, who can hit the ground running on the first day. And everything that we've talked about today, you know, the subject of criminal justice reform, I'm the only person in this really large fields who's actually done any of it uh, you know not just this is not just about having good ideas and spotting issues and areas for improvement. Uh, I have actually rolled up my sleeves in Brooklyn I think we created a national model for how to move prosecution forward uh, to make it more progressive and to just reshape the institution to dismantle parts of the prosecutor's office to build out new parts. Uh, and then I back that up with decades working across American legal institutions. I mean, you mentioned some of them from the front office of the leadership office of the Department of Justice with A.G. Holder to myself, having been a federal prosecutor for many years, have worked on gun violence cases and tax evasion cases and national security cases and the like. And uh, in this job, you know, running an office of 1,200 people
0: experience. Uh, and a track record really matters. And I, I want to thank you for for talking with me today. And our listeners, of course, are are really probably um, filled with even more questions. Um, mm-hmm. I I do want you to, to consider something as you go back and and think about these reforms. Think about the reforms that need to take place in the prosecutor's office because. I'm concerned when we talk about the exonerations in Brooklyn. Those exonerations came because something happened in the prosecutor's office that would lead to the need for an exoneration, and that focus on the prosecutors. What did the prosecutors do badly that we have these exonerations in the end? That is something I would like every prosecutor who's listening today, and, of course, you, um, because this is such an important office, to take into consideration to build trust with the people. I think it's Mm -hmm. so important in in how you would build that trust that's been lost um, for so many. And if Mm -hmm. you want to speak to that as we close, that would be fantastic, building that trust. Sorry, go ahead, Gloria. No, no, that's, that's it. Just how do we rebuild that trust that's been lost? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, Gloria, I couldn't agree with you more. And actually, I hope every prosecutor and everyone who's listening will take a look at the report we wrote called 426 Years about those first 25 exonerations where we lay out in detail what went wrong, what prosecutors did wrong, what police did wrong, what judges and defense counsel and other actors in the system did wrong to us allow these travesties of justice to happen uh, because that's a teaching document that's a document that says this is what can happen if you are not approaching this job as you should Uh, i i agree with you completely uh, that we have to do that reckoning as the first step in rebuilding trust as you said
0: Well, I thank you so much, Tally and weinstein for joining me. She is a candidate for Manhattan DA, and this is a continuation of our series, speaking with the candidates for our nation's top DA office. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, Gloria, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: This is Gloria J. Brown Marshall on Law of the Land and WBAI 99.5 FM, WBAI.org. We'll be right back after this message. And if you do have a thought on our conversation, please give us a call. The phone lines will be open, 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. Give us a call. We'll have about 10 minutes or so, so don't get too upset if we don't get to you. But if you call now, call in right now, you'll have a chance to express your ideas, your concerns, your thoughts regarding the DA's office, the run for Manhattan DA, what prosecutors do and what they shouldn't be doing. This is your time. To express your opinion, 212 209 2877. We'll be right back. And of course, that's Prince. Why don't you call me anymore? And earlier, Luther Vandross, If This World Were Mine. This is Law of the Land. I'm Gloria J. Marshall, Joy J. Brown Marshall, and you are our first caller. Good morning.
3: Um, Good morning. This is Gerald calling. How are you?
0: I'm doing well.
3: Um, I, I have a, a, maybe a point to make regarding um, the district attorney uh, position. Uh, looking at the case, the ex-officer, Officer Sharpin, this case was well presented by the attorney general of that state. However, the attorney general, he was a former uh, congressman, so he came from that position and came back in his community and represented the people of the state. Most of the time, we have people that are running for those offices. But they use it as a stepping stone to go higher in office, oh. and sometimes they don't even care about the community. All they care is building their resume, building their resume to use that to get to a point where they can perhaps retire, get a good pension, and move on with their life. So I think the the, the prosecutor in the Chauvin case is an example of how the the, the state can use their resources to fight the injustice in not only the black community, in the whole state that they represent.
0: That is a very good point. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we're uh, discussing the DA's office. We were earlier having a conversation with Tali Frahidian weinstein and she is um, one of the lead um, candidates for Manhattan DA. The the district attorney's office in Manhattan is the most powerful um, local DA office in the country, New York City being, you know, this... uh, Great, uh, powerful city that it is, of course, the DA's office would also be powerful as well. And it's a symbolic office because it it is one that sets the tone for the rest of the country and and can, um, through reform, show the rest of the country how we should reform our uh, prosecutor's office. And uh, we have another caller on. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. Good morning.
3: Oh,
1: hi. Is that me?
3: Yes. Oh. You know, um, I want to say that, um, and I, I don't mean any disrespect to the guest that was just on, but what I have been noticing at uh, these positions uh, and taking an oath, uh, whether it be with the Senate, especially from the Republican Senate or even the Congress, you know, a lot of them will say anything, take the oath, and know they don't have any intentions of really enforcing. Uh, living up to the oath, and I think something should be considered about that when, you know, people take the time to vote and put them in office and then they, they go in and learn about faith. I think something should be able to be done about that other than just waiting till their term ends and then they get voted out. But I think we've seen a lot of that. I'm seeing a lot of that happen now. They, they, they don't care about their oath. They're just the opposite.
0: And one, one of the questions you heard me ask several times, and I'm going to continue to ask politicians this, especially candidates, and, and that is uh, for the prosecutor's office, what are we doing with this prosecutorial discretion and their behavior? what is the punishment for prosecutors and i think this is the um the, the the seed that i'm planting in the minds of people that we've got to do something about these bad prosecutors we focus on the police yes we we need to do something about these um bad police officers the ones who are doing these things but what about the prosecutors who are supposed to be enforcing the law So what are we doing to them? The exoneration means someone was convicted, served time in prison, and was later found out they should never have been convicted in the first place. That's what an exoneration means. And so for them to serve that time in prison means that those prosecutors did something that they were not supposed to do, probably something illegal. And so if that's the case... Do those prosecutors just get their pensions, they retire, they go on with their lives? What is the punishment for having taken the lives of these people over the years they served in, in prison where they shouldn't have been serving there? That's, that's the thing that makes me irate. Uh, it, what, what are we doing with the police officers um, who are not being prosecuted, sending the message that you're not above the law, and what are we doing with prosecutors who allow the police officers to get away with these crimes? But, um, yes, I, I, but thank you so much for joining me. And we have time for one more caller. And if they are on the line now, this is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. Do we have another caller?
2: Yes, you do. I want to run it down real quick. Good morning, Gloria. Okay.
0: How are um, you I love doing? I'm
2: shows all the time. Yes, I'm fine. Thank you so much. But I'm not, I'm, I want them to be out of here soon. It's ridiculous that. We have to do the $25 thing for the show you support. I'm going to send $50, you know, $75 um, today for your show. But at the end of the day, I don't have enough $25, $50, $75 or $100. I want Green Street. I want um, Guns and Butter and Roses or whatever, Guns and Butter. It's ridiculous. So we should be able to send our money, be, um, you know, revolver thing buddies. But at the end of the day, at least make certain, at least NBA say, okay, what are your other three suggestions or top shows? And it's hard to say top shows. We got Gary in them, but we I don't send them because I know he, he's a staple there. But the bottom line is that has to be changed. So can you make that or hope Mike will hear the something? It shouldn't be just $25 for the one show. It's ridiculous. The programming is excellent, and we should be able to, without $25, $50, $100, whatever, um, be able to state and, or at least make a um, recommendation for other shows. That's First of all, second of all, thank you for the show, and you're always on this, this matter and so am I. I'm a former law enforcement officer, a New York State Correctional Officer. I work for Eric Adam, as his own constitutional liaison, and i be doing other things. However, I want to say that um, this is a crucial point that you're always on, and I'm on it, and maybe we can do something. Um, and we, you and I have talked, too, also on the phone and everything. Um, but, yeah, so I'm not going to go on further, and I am speaking kind of fast. hope you're, you're getting this, but I'm just saying... Um, this is a crucial thing. And, and, and she was sort of reluctant at times. She said, oh, they can't work for me. Look, say they're fired. Say there'll be a six-month investigation or some other extensive investigation with three months or six months with no pay. Things like that make people think about working in conjunction with police officers and say with a, the with a possibility of termination at the end of that investigation. But no pay means no vacation. You're not going to get three months to vacate, six months to vacate. You, I mean, you take that money, Gloria. Pen investigation. You know why? Because your position, your decision is crucial, and it's people's freedom, lives, job opportunities, things like that, that they're losing. So in and life and, and liberty, and, and then when they're in there, it's not just about, oh, I lost my freedom. What are they subjected to while they're in there trying to survive in prison? So, and that was the same thing. So what I'm saying is this. We want some people that's going to come out. And understand this, and put their mouth with, because I was telling her that I will look into this lady, but we're not even get that. And I'm gonna, I'm yeah, keep pushing that keep pushing them, um, Gloria, because I want to hear somebody say we'll open up investigations if we find a bad prosecutor. Bottom line, get the bad apples out. If not, then you're just as guilty.
0: Amen. Um, or not,
2: maybe not just that, but you're certainly complicit. And we don't want to have the authority. then use it. The people are putting you in there, so you keep those underlings—100, 120 people under her or whatever the amount was, 1,200 people. You keep them in check. You have the power. Use it. And don't be afraid. If you are, then stand back. Stand down. You don't need the job yet.
0: That's I'm so glad you said that. And and I'm so glad that we had a chance to have these conversations. We're going to continue to have the conversations with the candidates. And and that is just the point. You said it so well. Thank you so much. We're out of time. I'm being given the signal. So I've got to, to close. But that is a great way to close this show. Thank you so much. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. Today we had a continuation of the series of conversations we'll have with the the candidates for the the Office of District Attorney from Manhattan, uh, you know that uh, we will do the best we can to inform, to enlighten, to empower. And as we go forward, please stay safe. I do want to confess, I guess, admit, and I told you I would tell you if I received the vaccine, and I did. I took my Pfizer vaccine Friday, first shot. Um, I didn't see enough people with masks on um you know it was very difficult because my mother passed away from complications from the second moderna um vaccine uh vaccination i should say um it's still very very painful so many things happened um uh, as uh many people have said and dr fauci has mentioned um taking the vaccine especially moderna and having um Blood thinners, heparin in particular, disastrous effects that people are not uh, aware of. And so I I do have to... um give you that information you've been with me throughout these years you know uh, many things that i have gone through and my personal losses and so i have decided and did decide to take the the first pfizer vaccine and i thank those who have contacted me when i was trying to make my decision around that um i will keep you up to date um regarding um how i'm doing so far so good but um We've got so much to talk about, and we have to wait until next week because our time is up.